to Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for every year of the 20th century. I'm Sandra Newman, and I'm here with my co-host, Catherine Nichols. And today is our second episode about V.C. Andrews' 1979 novel, Flowers in the Attic, a cult classic especially beloved by teenage girls. So in Flowers in the Attic, four children are incarcerated in the attic of their family's fabulous mansion by their mother and grandmother, who are conniving to inherit the grandfather's fortune and want to suppress the fact of the children's existence, which is a major plot point um, in the novel as to why, um, which we've probably already given away in episode one, but I'll still try to avoid a spoiler here. So... Uh, we were going to talk about uh, V.C. Andrews' actual life and um, her time and how it relates to this book. Uh, do you want to start with any of the research that you did about her? Okay, so just starting with basics, um, she was 56 years old when the first book was published. Um, and according to her, she had been writing for years and years and years and had written over a dozen books already had not had much success publishing them. And, and she had made her living as a graphic artist. But all this time, because B.C. Andrews had a spinal injury and was disabled and used a wheelchair, she was living with her mother and being taken care of by her mother. Um, and this is always like really fascinated people. Like They see this as, in its essence, gothic. It's almost like a Norman Bates situation to people. There's something sick about living with your mother in the first place. And the idea that she she is in a wheelchair and her mother is, you know, like inevitably the mother in this situation becomes an evil presence like Corinne in the novel. Um, and it is, and there are these these notes about it. Her mother outlived her for one thing, which never looks good. And her mother did not read her books, which also, you know, if you've ever been in a family where people don't read your books, it's actually not doesn't doesn't mean that much. It means that they usually don't read books very much. But it's you know, it looks bad. It just looks bad. So so people from her publisher onward have framed this as this kind of creepy situation. Which she she did not like. She did not appreciate that one bit. Yeah, I I was really interested in um, just some of the ways that she was talking about herself and her body, um, like that it was a big deal to her that she used a wheelchair, but that she didn't have to. That she actually was capable of walking. She just couldn't walk far. Or it was with great difficulty, um, and I was thinking. I wish that I wish that she had access to the internet. I wish that she had access to, um, I don't know, disability Twitter. Like I wish she could talk to other people um, who, who sort of are looking at where, like, why is that the line where you're drawing your sense of dignity from? Mm. Why is there a degree of ability that you think you should sort of claim for yourself and um, defend when it, it just seems like the way that she was being treated by the whole publicity machine was pretty dehumanizing. Um, and as we discussed in the last episode, the idea of 
a mother taking care of an adult disabled daughter, it's either the mother is the victim or the daughter is Mm. the victim. But it doesn't seem like there's a way of telling that story in which both people are fine and are um, a family who are living <laughs> dignified lives. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. One of these people has to be the gothic wrongdoer. Yeah, yeah. And it's all framed as like impossible. It, it was treated like almost as a black box that you couldn't look into. And she would keep trying to say, no, actually, like, I have friends, you know, I have a relatively normal life. But they they refused that and completely suppressed that and and treated her as if she were an object of gothic horror herself. Yeah, and you you were talking about the very, very strange way that her name was treated after her death. Yes, and this is this is part of it. Okay. She died in 1986. Four days later, a memo was prepared for Simon and Schuster's staff. So this is not just the public, it's the staff stating that VC was writing right up until the time of her death. And there are a number number of novels remaining to be published, including the prequel to Flowers in the Attic. This was a lie. There were no other novels. Instead, they hired a ghostwriter. I think there was half of a novel, actually. I think that's the case. But no full novels, no completed novels. So they hired this ghostwriter. And the ghostwriter they hire is this actually quite loathsome person, in my opinion, Andrew Niederman, okay? And Andrew Niederman is a popular writer. He wrote, I forget, I'm not even going to say, I, I just dislike this guy. So so Andrew Niederman, who, I mean, notably is a man, which is something that I don't think V.C. Andrews would have felt comfortable with. She was on record as saying that men were not capable of writing women well. Um, and they just have I, I him. Think, yeah, there's something to be said there for the kind of stories she's telling it feels very weird that they would choose a male ghostwriter. Yeah, and her her take on gender is extremely particular, which I think we'll get to later on um, in this episode. Definitely. Yeah, and I, I just want to say about Niederman, if you're, you're wondering why I don't like him, he, he really, this is one of his greatest hits, is that he married a student of his when he was a high school teacher. Um, oh. And uh, actually, okay, they, they make in this interview, which is with him and his wife, they make a big distinction. Like she was not his student. She was just a student at the school where he taught as a high school teacher. Um, and his wife has, feels compelled to make the joke. Today, he would be brought up on charges. So um, again, choosing a weird line to like hold on to your dignity. Yeah. <laughs> Like, uh, okay, yeah, let's keep going. And then the second, the second, like, Dinerman greatest hit is when he was, when they finally, he finally came out. It was like this, was the result of a legal battle, which isn't that interesting, but it finally came out that he was the ghostwriter and he was on a local TV show being interviewed about this. And they asked him how he wrote as a woman. He, and this is what he says about this. I was a little angry, and I said with a straight face, I said, well, in the morning I put on my wife's nightgown and high-heeled shoes and start to type. The host looked at me like she had a lunatic on the show. After counting to three, he said he was kidding and added that credit for the joke goes to his wife. 
So, oh wow. So this is the kind of person that we're talking about. Um, and I can't even quantify, I can't really explain why these, these particular like sallies on the part of Niederman and, and I would say his wife too, uh, are so, there's, it's, there's sort of an anti-Gothic thing about it. It's like when we were talking about cheaper by the dozen, the normal that is monstrous. Yeah. It's giving me a big, the past is a different country feeling that that was something that he felt comfortable just saying. Yeah. Or that he thought that was how he should present it. This was a way that he could appeal to the audience was by presenting himself in exactly this way. Yeah. Um, So I think if, if we see a lot of just the idea that they're doing this kind of um, like taxidermy with her, like that they are allowing her to publish books long after her death, but it's somebody else who's writing just fully under her name. Um, Sorry, I'm phrasing that in a really weird way. It grosses me out. I think that she's being treated badly especially when it retcons things that happen in her books, when it changes the, the, um, the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but we were going to talk about her very specific um, attitude toward gender. And I was thinking one of the things I really loved about this book that I didn't expect to going in is how much dignity she is actually giving a story that otherwise could seem kind of trashy and absurd in some mm-hmm. ways. Um, I mean, I think that the books have such a reputation for being trashy. And then I thought that isn't how I actually read it at all. I read it as a, a emotionally serious book about disability um, with some embroidery that felt more Gothic. But I think that, it came from an era when there were a lot of books that were considered feminist that were about um, teenage girls succeeding in masculine pursuits and being like, not like other girls. And I was amazed by how much more strongly this book was presenting what I think of as actual feminism in some ways um, by just showing what, um, just how trapped the mother with, four children is when her husband dies that she has no way to, she has no way to support them. She has to depend on her parents and um, sort of abide by their kind of extreme religious rules. Um, The lack of power of people to rely on things other than the family and the extreme degree of power that people are able to have within a family. I'm actually telling a really specific story about why it's necessary for people to have legal rights outside of their mm-hmm. family, but like ways to legitimately escape that power. Yeah. It was a very unromantic version, a vision of the family, like the opposite of cheaper. Yeah, no, not the opposite of cheaper by the dozen. <laughs> it was the cheaper by the dozen children's story. Like the, the story of like, yeah. oh, what if mother actually has that degree of power over you? Yeah. The story told from the point of view of the sheep, I mean, yes. we're, we're never yeah. going to forget yeah. those sheep that were tortured to death. 
Yeah. Uh. And I think it's interesting, like, how gendered the book is. The book is intensely gendered. The boys are always emphatically different from the girls. She wants to be a ballerina and her brother wants to be a doctor. And and this is somehow, it's it's really kind of, like, within the book, it has this magical and spooky power to create those that gender binary that is so intense and feels perverse to me. I think it's part of the perversity of the book is to lean into everything that might be, that might feel wrong, actually. Anything that might feel wrong, like the, the sexual feelings for the parents or that the parents have for the children. She leans into that to a point which is just on the edge of being surreal and likewise, the gender differences are almost surreal. That's a really interesting point. It reminds me of um, like the painters like Balthus or um, mm-hmm. John Curran, right? Like people who take gender and then make it just on the point of aesthetically upsetting. Just the repetition of the idea of like, oh, Christopher inherited his father's brains. Christopher inherited his father's <laughs> brains. He's smart like his father because he inherited his brains. Um, That is also an explosion to the point of unsettlingness of things that people would say. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, women being beautiful, men being smart, as like each of them sort of in their ideal role. It definitely feels like she's talking about how airless and um, terrifying that world is if you're not allowed to just say like, Oh, I'm not like other girls. I'm going to go be a dragon slaying lawyer, doctor, uh, Miss America astronaut that it's not like your choice, whether you're in that world or not, that these characters are so tied into that role, into, into that super airless exaggerated version of gender. And there's also, I think that, I mean, in the last episode, I was proposing that this is outsider art, which I I still really believe. And I think like a lot of outsider art, it has this really interesting relationship both to the the higher brow, like literary fiction, but also to an idea of what popular fiction is and what the popular audience is that is very like individual and just a little bit wrong. And that at the genderedness of the characters feels to me like it's related to that. It's, you know, if you look at other popular fiction at the time that was aimed at a female audience, like the the kind of shopping and fucking novels of Judith Krantz, they're also like highly gendered and, and very much about these female characters whose lives are completely sexualized in every aspect of their lives. And this is a fantasy for for a woman who's not thinking about what it would be like in real life. Um, so and this I, is sort of like bringing out some of the terrifying suffocation of that fantasy and making it explicit, which obviously like VC Andrews didn't know you, it was like saying the quiet part out loud and turning it into the whole part. Yeah. I, so I think my experience of this book um, was putting it alongside Sweet Valley High, mm-hmm. um, which I also didn't read. <laughs> um, so I, I, 
only have a um, sort of glancing understanding of both of those things from, until I read this book. So now I have more understanding of this book. I think, but, I um, think that, that our listeners should know that both of us were actually raised in 19th century Russia and therefore <laughs> we don't know any of this stuff. <laughs> I, I don't actually know if they read, if the Sweet Valley Twins books, if they read as normal, if I read them now, mm-hmm. would I read them as normal or would I read them as upsetting outsider art? Like upsetting, but also brilliant outsider art, the way I, I read this as. Well, you get these things, I mean, at least at least in Flowers in the Attic, the, the coloring of the children is consistent with nature. Because in, in a Judith Krantz novel, like, and actually in a lot of the romance fiction of the period, like Princess Daisy, that's a Judith Krantz novel that I happen to, I actually reread that recently. Um, the the main character, Princess Daisy, has platinum blonde hair and eyes that are a peculiar shade of black in that they are such a dark blue that they are black. Sexy. Is, yeah, it's sexy. And, you know, of course, she's the most beautiful woman in the entire world. Um, and, <laughs> and you're sort of like, it, it kind of poses a challenge to the reader to picture this as happening on a real human head. But... Um, but there's something about it. Like if you if you say that and you mention it a few times, then it's kind of like, oh, well, like I'm 15. I can I can accept that as romantic. I'll imagine this. But if you say it 25 times, it's immediately creepy. And you know that you're in the realm of the, unca- you know, the, oh, OK, this is Uncanny Valley. And I think um, V.C. Andrews does that like with the much more realistic, but still very weird coloring of these these Dresden doll children that is repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. I I don't know if she thought that she was describing beautiful children or not. Like, I don't know if she was trying to, to give a creepy feeling about it. That's a really good point because you sort of read it and she's telling you that they're beautiful. It's, I mean, it's so, it's just so interesting how this goes into like her treatment as a person with a disability is that, she makes them both beautiful and disabled, like especially the two younger children who become increasingly sick and then their, you know, their bodies don't grow, but their heads still grow. So they're beautiful, but they're also a little bit freakish. And you don't really know whether the beauty is freakish or the, you know, you know what I mean? She's conflating these two things in your head. Um, Definitely. So when Kathy is practicing ballet in the attic, she's obviously not practicing actual ballet because mm-hmm. you can't learn ballet in in an attic. It's it's a form where you need people to like <laughs> having a mirror in a swan lake costume does not mean that what you're practicing is ballet. <laughs> However, what she's describing sounds a lot like the kind of physical therapy or whatever um, a person who has um, a lot of physical challenges, what, what VC Andrews herself might be doing mm-hmm. in order to make sure that she can still walk when she's not using her wheelchair, that kind of thing is probably much closer to what Kathy is doing. I think that using ballet as a way of talking about disability is, um, it feels really real to me. It feels like she's telling us something important about what she's doing 
and how much she has to think about and control her body and the idea that there could be something beautiful inside what she's doing, even if what other people see when they look at her is a person who is not even up to average in control of their body. What she's saying is she's telling a story about somebody who's extremely in control of their body. Um, uh, because maybe that's where her effort is and that's where her thinking is. Um, it, it just felt like one of the angles on it being a story about disability. Um, as you also noticed, the older children can actually leave the house and they just choose not to because they have reasons not to, but they have these really exhilarating moments where they're able to leave and they feel just normal and okay. And then they kind of go back into it. Um, which also yeah. felt like, like she was telling us something really important about her life. Like be a being able to walk, like she could walk. Yeah. It's, the, it's sort of the equivalent of that. Like, well, I can get out of the wheelchair. I can walk. And in fact, she, she actually wrote standing up. So she said, so she had to, in fact, had to write standing up. So there's, so there's that whole thing in the book, of course, because it's sort of, it feels figurative. It feels like it's a metaphor for something else because it doesn't add up as, as a kind of suspense. They could leave the house and just go to a police station at any time. Like as soon as, <laughs> as soon as they begin to feel uncomfortable or they, there, there are so many ways that they could have escaped from the house if they had wished to, yeah, if you were reading it literally. Yeah. Which maybe uh, can bring us to the, the question of flowers in the attic and how it relates to Gothic fiction and the haunted house novel. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, Oh, I just wanted to say one more thing about Mm -hmm. uh, disability and, and uh, exhilaration and um, the part in Lucy Greeley's uh, autobiography of a face when she talks about how um, after she's had some kind of surgery that, temporarily makes her face look um I don't know if I want to use the word normal I am trying to think of what word she used and I'm not remembering right now but um that it changed her face to a way that was closer to what she wanted it to look like and um and she describes just feeling so happy that she doesn't understand that other people don't feel that happy all the time Mm um and I I just wonder, like, I don't think that we have um, contexts that would tell us what things might, like what contexts V.C. Andrews herself might have felt that kind of exhilaration of like a temporary respite from some difficult circumstances. The way that the children feel when they go outside and feel like actually they run around in nature, they go swimming. But we were going to talk about the Gothic and the haunted house. Yeah. I mean, it, it just struck me because we we just read The Haunting of Hill House. And so maybe it's on my mind. But obviously, this is always called a gothic novel, which implies that there's, there's a dark secret in the family, which obviously there is. And that secret takes the form of a curse, which haunts the new generation. And obviously, that that is, in fact, what happens in this book. Um, 
But I, I also like, I thought it was interesting, like it really made me realize that a haunted house narrative, and this feels like a kind of a flipped haunted house narrative, is about a poor person entering a rich space and being destroyed or terrorized. Interesting. And also like a I lot of gothic that's... novels, like this, of course, this make, made me think of the mad woman in the attic, although there's no real mad woman in the attic, but they're, they are the the excluded unmentionable people trapped in the attic. Um, again, it, like that story is about a poor person entering a rich space. Although in that story, it's not the mad woman who's the poor person. Well, or the, um, the turn of the screw, like mm-hmm. Manny. Um, I mean, really, maybe we just need to put more rich people into poor spaces and see what happens. Indeed. I mean, I suppose there are, there are stories like that, but... Um, but usually they consider it cozy, I'm thinking. I don't know that it ever destroys them. Well, I think that it's like the Cabin in the Woods novel, uh, sorry, movie is more of a rich people in a poor rural space. It's always rural. Oh, that's true, Yeah. Yeah, or like the hills have eyes. I didn't see that, but I'm just guessing that. I don't know. I think there's some sl- like slasher narratives that are about that. I'm just trying to think about every single novel. So, you know, don't. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I know it's impossible. <laughs> I don't know. A cold um, comfort farm. Cold comfort farm is about. <laughs> cold comfort farm is an excellent example. The haunted house where the protagonist is in fact the character that is doing the haunting. Yeah. Because they're the secret They're They're the mice in the attic They're, I mean, really in a sense, if you look, if you turn the novel around and look at it from the point of view of the older people, like we were talking about this in relation to like, somebody has to be the bad guy, either it's the disabled person or it's the person who is taking care of the disabled person and how that is framed by society as is that the carer is victimized and and therefore it's justified if they kill the disabled person. And that's what this novel is talking about, at least on one level. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that it, it also is about the um, terrifying degree of power inside the family and the lack of innocence inside mm. the family um, because the actual solution to the problem of caregiver fatigue is um, that it's not just one person who does all of the caring. Like, that, you know, it's like, okay, if, if you're, you know, having tr- trouble with your children, like daycare at school, and um, that there are ways that you can sort of... Uh, not have one person do 100% of the caring that any other person needs. And there are so many structures in society, like restaurants, where one person doesn't have to do all of the cooking that they will ever mm. eat. And the idea that, that there aren't those um, structures necessarily set up around these people for the care that they need to provide and accept um that's 
a real failure of society. That's the evil world. Yeah. Though in, in this book, it's also, I mean, here we're talking about like the family and how much power the family has. So there, there's also the question of like, if you let somebody else do the work, you give up some of your power. Um, that's true. That's, that's a good point. Um, because the mother does for a while try to get a secretarial job and then sort of fails. But she also, oh my gosh, she fails and she's, she's like, oh, other women learn to do this as though <laughs> her, her abilities must match all other women. And the fact that other women could be secretaries means that she could. And it, it's such a, he got his brains from his father. He inherited his brains <laughs> from his father kind of moment. Anyway, the amount that the children are under the power of the mother and then the amount that the mother herself is trapped by her inability to provide for anyone without a job or an ability to get a job or any professional training. And then the amount that the grandfather um, is able to just like, he can earn so much money. He can have all of these wacky and terrible religious beliefs that he just gets to force everyone else to live by. It's true that if that there's many ways that if any of those, if there were less power for any of those people, they would also have less responsibility and be less exhausted and evil toward each other, but they would have less power. Yes. And I, I think it's also interesting that the grandfather is in a wheelchair, which is the strange, I mean, he's this figure who never actually appears. It's true. We never think. see him. And he has all of the power in the narrative and he's actually, he is actually literally disabled within the narrative rather than being like figuratively disabled. Um, and, and in a way, like everyone blames their evil doing on him. Like he's the focus of the blame throughout the narrative, whatever it is, like the buck is always passed to him in terms of, oh, I was forced to do it by, by my father. I was, you know, my husband, this, this, that, and the other, but actually. <laughs> Sandy, then they're, they're pretty much take his name after his death and, like ghostwrite for him. Ah, oh my God. The curse Whoa. has been passed down to a new generation. Yeah. Cause he dies before they stop saying like, Oh, I'm doing it. <laughs> I'm still doing evil in his name. That was our second episode on B.C. Andrews' Flowers in the Attic. Thanks, as always, to Adam Baer for our theme music and to LitHub for hosting us. And if you want to talk to us, you can always reach us on Twitter at LitCenturyPod or via email at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com.